Good evening. Appreciate your coming back again tonight. It's been a while since we've been in Second Peter. Uh, we had been considering the judgment that God brings upon the non-believer, upon the false teacher, and how we can have hope and confidence for the future. Tonight, we focus on the hope that is associated with the Lord's return and the establishment of the new heaven and new earth. So the key verse for this evening is 2 Peter 3.13. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The theme for tonight is that we are not to lose hope in the establishment of a new heaven and new earth in association with the Lord's return. The new heavens and new earth are characterized by righteousness. Notice it says, but according to his promise, we're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. What is going to be so wonderful about the new heaven and new earth is that there is no unrighteousness to be found in it. There will be no sin, nor any of the consequences of sin. We think of death. We think of misery, sorrow, heartache, all kinds of trouble that sin brings into this sinful, fallen world that we now live in. But in the new heavens and new earth, it will be totally eradicated. There will be no sin. The evil one will be off the scene. Satan will have no power, no jurisdiction, no involvement in the new heaven and new earth. It will be a complete utopia, for there will be no unrighteousness in it. Secondly, the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells is in keeping with God's promise concerning the Lord's return. Notice it says, but according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth. Now, that promise is cited in 2 Peter 3.3. That's the bookends for this particular uh, pericope. Know this first, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? So the promise of the new heaven and new earth is associated with the promise of the Lord's return. It will be in conjunction with the Lord's return that ultimately he will make a new heaven and a new earth. It's not immediate. It's not exactly at the point in time in which the Lord Jesus returns, but the return of the Lord Jesus Christ sets in motion a series of events that are going to culminate in a new heaven and a new earth. But what is at focal point is the promise of the Lord's return. Thirdly, the believer 
is to live in anticipation of the establishment of the new heavens and new earth. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's our ultimate hope. We shouldn't lose sight of that. That is the ultimate hope for the child of God. This new heaven, this new earth. This earth as we know it is going to be completely and totally transformed. And we are going to live forever and ever in resurrected bodies. A life similar to the life which we now live, except without any sinfulness. That is the ultimate finalization and completion of our salvation. When we dwell in resurrected bodies, in this new heaven, in this new earth, that's what ultimately we look forward to. Inaugurated by the Lord's return. A. We're to avoid the trap of the ungodly world and losing sight of the new heavens and new earth. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace, spotless, and blameless. And regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation. Just as also our Lord, our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. As also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. You therefore, my beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest being carried away by your error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfast. But grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Before the Lord returns, non-believers will be making fun of those who are looking for the Lord's return. Verse 3. Know this first, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following in their own lusts. And what they are mocking is, in the next verse, verse 4, where is the promise of his coming? Where is the promise of his coming? Why hasn't Jesus come back? The world does not anticipate, does not look forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. They just make a joke of it. Uh, I think it was either the, 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 the turtles or the birds that uh, sang concerning the Lord's return. Uh, if he is coming by 2110, if he's not coming, uh, he won't make it by then. You know, the, the, the world mocks the Lord's return. And it's easy for us to really not live in anticipation of the Lord's return. Prophecy conferences at one point around the turn of the century and early in the 1900s were quite in vogue. Prophecy conferences are pretty rare animals these days because people have become disillusioned. People have become disheartened. There have been so many date setters. There have been so many people that have been telling us that it's going to be tomorrow or it's going to be the next day or it's going to be 1984 or it's going to be this event. 
that people have become disillusioned. Disheartened. And I think many people have really lost confidence in the fact that the Lord Jesus is going to return. He's going to return. We don't know when. He's coming back. This is a passage that gives us hope. And it's a passage that explains to us why the Lord Jesus Christ hasn't returned yet. It's intended to give us hope and confidence as we think about the Lord's return. Notice C. They will say everything has always continued as it was from the beginning of time. Verse 4. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. There is nothing new under the sun. Everything continues as it has. The non-believing world does not view time literally. It views time in a circular fashion. That everything that goes around is coming around. We hear such things as history repeats itself. The idea that we're not moving forward, we're not, we're not on a progressive path that leads to a final destination. We are on a linear path, leading to a final destination. D. It is not true that there have, there have, that is not true for there have been times of judgment along the way. Verse 5 and 6. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. So, they forget that this world had a beginning. In fact, the secular world denies the aspect that this world had a beginning. One of the laws of thermodynamics is that matter cannot be created nor destroyed. They fail to see that there's a beginning. And in failing to see that there's a beginning, they fail to see that there's an end. That time is going to run out. Verse 5. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. And the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed. There was a flood. There was an incredible catastrophe in ancient history. A worldwide flood came upon this earth. An illustration that everything has not always continued just as it was. There have been periods of judgment. And the periods of judgment are illustrative of a greater and future judgment that is going to come. God intervened in history at certain points to demonstrate the reality of judgment and to illustrate the truth of judgment. So there was a worldwide flood talking about how judgment is going to be universal. And all mankind is going to experience judgment. I have talked about the judgments that came upon Egypt and how those judgments are in keeping with the judgments that are revealed in the book of Revelation. How they are illustrative of how God will judge. Then there's the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah that we looked at the last time that I spoke 
as we looked at this passage. There have been times of judgment that illustrate that there's going to be one great final judgment yet to come. The final day of judgment is still coming, verse 7. But the present heavens and earth by his word are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So, what about this promise of his coming? Verse 8. Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness. The word for slow here could easily be translated negligent. Negligent. Jesus is not procrastinating. I'm a huge procrastinator. I must admit. My wife will ask for me to do some things. And I'll say, sure dear, I'll do it. But then I procrastinate. I put it off. I don't really want to do it. I don't really feel like doing it. I do everything I can to get out of it. It is not to my credit. It's blameworthy. It's negligent. Not true with the promise of Christ's return. He's not being negligent. He's not being a procrastinator. He's not putting it off. He's not in any way doing something that is inappropriate. Rather, it says that the Lord is patient in keeping his promise. But notice in verse 9, but is patient towards you. Patience is a good thing. Patience says that he's waiting. Waiting with good reason. The reason the Lord has come, not come back yet is not because he failed to keep his promise, not because he forgot what he said, not because he's being negligent, not because he's being a procrastinator, not anything negative, but something positive. He's being patient. And that patience, it says, is being manifested towards you. And what is that patience? Notice verse 9. The Lord is patiently waiting because he is not willing for any of the elect to perish. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Now, some observations. I think of all the verses in the Bible, there are about a handful of them, about five or six, that are incredibly abused. Meaning that they're put on their head. They're turned around so that what they are said to say is actually opposite of what it does say. This is one of those verses. Because the common interpretation of this verse, because it's taken out of context and not considered the verses that go before and after, is that God is not willing that any single human being would go to hell. That's not what God wants. God does not want any human being to go to hell. Now think about that for a moment. If that's what this verse is teaching, then, number one, if the Lord, if the reason the Lord has not returned is because he is not willing for any human being to perish, then he'll never come back. You understand that? If that's what that verse means, 
because it's explaining the reason why he hasn't come back. If the reason he hasn't come back is because he's not willing that any human being would perish, he's not coming. And the passage is emphasizing he is coming. So it can't mean that. Number two. Further, each day he waits, more humans are born, and the situation becomes increasingly worse. If the reason that he hasn't returned yet is because he's not willing that any person would perish, things are getting worse. Because every day there's another baby being born. Every day there are more non-believers. Every day it's getting more out of hand. And God is sitting in heaven and wringing his hands and saying, what am I going to do? There's more unbelievers now than there was yesterday. And there are going to be more unbelievers tomorrow than there are today. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Three. The broader context shows that God is not willing for even one of the elect to perish, but he does bring judgment upon the wicked. I mean, there's illustration after illustration in the book of Second Peter, if you're willing to look at it. First, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. The illustration here is that, that he, being God, did not spare the people of the ancient world. He brought judgment upon them and spared seven people. Spared seven people. Let me put it to you another way. He was willing to let thousands, hundreds of thousands, perhaps more, People die, but spared seven people. When you look at the flood, the idea that he is not willing that any one person perishes goes up in smoke. Or to keep the metaphor, is carried away in the water. Notice verse 6 of Second Peter. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes having made them an example to those that would live ungodly thereafter. Sodom and Gomorrah, it says, is an example for us. And what did God do in Sodom and Gomorrah? He destroyed the entire cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Whole cities. Reducing them to ashes. Verse 7, but he rescued Lot. And, of course, Lot's daughters. I'll keep reading so you have the context. Verse 8. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. Verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. The illustration is God knows how to preserve the righteous and to punish the wicked. God knows how to deliver the righteous while bringing judgment upon a fallen world. That's the application. 
And those are the verses leading up to 2 Peter chapter 3. The illustration is of God's patience and waiting for the building of the ark so that the elect would be spared and then judgment came upon the multitudes. Remember our verse in 2 Peter, verse 9 said, but is patient towards you. Notice 1 Peter 3.20. Who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water. The example of patience towards you is patience towards the elect. God was patient in the days of Noah. God said, there's going to be judgment. There's going to be destruction. There's going to be a worldwide flood. But it didn't happen immediately. It took years before that judgment, before those waters came upon this earth. Why did God wait? Why didn't God bring the flood immediately? Why, when he announced it to Noah, did it not begin to rain the next day? Answer, because he gave Noah time to build the ark. He waited patiently, it says, for eight people. Because he's not willing that one elect person will be lost. He waited patiently for Noah. Remember in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, how Lot doesn't want to leave? And God sends the angels that look like men to take him out of the city. And he still doesn't want to leave. And they actually have to grab him by hand and lead him out of the city. And when he is led out of the city, guess what happens? It's destroyed. But God is patient. And God wouldn't destroy that city as long as Lot and his two daughters were in it. But once they were out, then judgment came. So there is no safety in numbers. So, why hasn't the Lord returned yet? Because he is patient towards you, not willing that one elect person would perish. Why hasn't Jesus Christ returned yet? Because the last elect person hasn't been saved yet. When will he return? When that last one is saved. And then he's coming. That's a good thing. He's not being negligent. He's being patient. He's being long-suffering. He's being a good and gracious God. But don't let his long-suffering patience lead you to the place where you say, well, he's never coming. 
Just like those in the days of Noah mocked and said there'd never be a flood. Just like Lot's sons-in-law mocked and thought that the city of Sodom and Gomorrah would never be destroyed. There are people that are mocking today. The Lord will return. Next, when the Lord returns, judgment will come to the wicked unexpectedly. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Here's another one of those verses of Scripture that are put on their, put on their head. And that is the whole imagery in the Word of God of the thief in the night. And maybe you saw the movie, you know, the, the Christian movie, Thief in the Night. The scripture says that he will come unexpectedly for the non-believer. Verse 2 of 1 Thessalonians 5. It alludes to the writings of Paul in 2 Peter. That's why I'm going there. It says in keeping with the writings of Paul. So here are the writings of Paul. For yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come upon them suddenly. Like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. He should not come unexpectedly for the believer. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day should overtake you like a thief. The scripture says, for the believer, he doesn't come like a thief. He doesn't come unexpectedly. He doesn't come out of the blue. But the believer is awake. The believer is anticipating. The believer is looking forward to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. But, in that looking forward to, in that anticipation... There is an illustration, an extremely helpful illustration. And that is, it is like the birth pains upon a woman. Now, there is a show, I've seen it a couple of times, that's on some cable network about women who don't know they're pregnant. I'm always amazed by that. How can a woman be pregnant and not know? That she's pregnant. Well, I guess it happens every once in a blue moon. I don't know how, but evidently it does. But uh, just out of curiosity, are any of the mothers here, uh, were you surprised one day when you woke up and you realized that you were delivering? Anybody that didn't know that they were pregnant? No. The illustration is of birth pains. Most people know that they are pregnant. And not only that they're pregnant, but the time's getting close. And the doctor has given them a due date. Just out of curiosity, how many people gave birth on their due date? One, two, three, four. How many people didn't give birth on their due date? Look around. The vast majority. Okay? You knew you were pregnant. 
You knew it was coming, and you knew it was coming soon, but you didn't know exactly when. I remember our first child. You probably heard this story. It puts me in bad light, so I'll tell it to you so you can feel sorry for my wife. My first child, Sarah. Bonnie went to the doctor. It was, I think, a Thursday. I don't remember what day it was. Bonnie will remember. What day was it? She doesn't remember either. Okay, good. I feel good. But we love you, Sarah. You were special to us. Okay. So anyway, Bonnie went to the doctor and, and uh, she, she saw the gynecologist and they said, well, you know, it could be any time. It could be right away. It could be two weeks. The baby's coming. Well, she got home and uh, I was in seminary at the time. And I had a paper that was due, and this was before computers and all that stuff. This was typewriters, and I couldn't type. And she would be my typist, and she was typing a paper for me that was due the next day. All of a sudden, as she's typing away, she starts feeling these twinges. And she said, I think I'm going into labor. No, no, that's false labor. Keep typing. Keep typing. So, so you know, she's, she's working along, and uh, she said, no, I think this is the real thing. No, 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 we've been through this before. This is false labor. Keep going, keep going. So, yeah, I'm, I'm you know, uh, there with a whip, and we're, we're working on this. And, and uh, so we start timing them, and sure enough, these things are starting to be regular, and it looks like it's time. And so I had to say, okay, you can stop. We'll go to the hospital and have this baby. It didn't come as a huge surprise. We had a nursery. We had the crib. We had the car seat. You know, we had the bag packed that you're supposed to do. We did all that stuff. But we didn't know what day it would be. The illustration of the scripture is you don't know when it's going to be. But you know it's coming. You're aware that it's taking place. And I believe that there are even some signs in the Word of God that are given to us to help us to know that we're getting closer. It's like birth pangs upon a woman. You know it's soon, but you don't know just when. It doesn't come upon us like a thief. It comes upon the world like a thief. Because we're anticipating. We're looking forward to. We're believing the promises of God. So, concluding application. We're to continue to be diligent in our expectation of the Lord's return and the new heavens and the new earth. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace. You're looking forward to this. You're anticipating this. You're living in light. Of the reality of this new heaven and new earth. Second, we are to see the patience of the Lord and not returning until all the elect will be saved. And regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation. We are to understand why the Lord hasn't returned yet. We are to give Him praise. We are to give Him thanksgiving. We are to acknowledge His goodness. It is wonderful That the Lord has not yet returned because more people are coming to faith. It will also be wonderful when he does return. 
because there will be a new heaven and new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is in keeping with Paul's prophetic teaching as well. 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. And regarding the patience of our Lord to be salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to wisdom given him, wrote to you. And then lastly, we should be longing for the Lord's return and the removal of sin and evil. Revelation 22, 20. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I'm coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. I hope that we all anticipate and look forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It will be wonderful when the Lord returns. Hang in there. Keep looking. He's coming back. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, give us trust, hope, confidence in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we give him praise, understanding the reason he has not yet come is because he's not willing that one elect person would perish. But there will become a day he will return. There will be great destruction. The ungodly will be punished. The righteous will experience new heaven and new earth. Lord, may these things not come upon us as a thief. May we live in anticipation. May we be like that pregnant woman who knows that she is going to give birth. And Lord, may we live in a certain knowledge that the Lord Jesus Christ is returning. And may we live soberly and righteously as we think of that great hope. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much and you are dismissed.